It's story time at Disc Radio. And there's a story coming from us to you. Hello there. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Connor McMullen. We'll get to introducing our guest in a second but I just wanted to let you know a few things before the show starts. There is a bad word that pops up just for a flash, but if you're listening with children or somebody who maybe doesn't want to hear that word, just to let you know, it's there. The other thing you should know is our guest and I both love storytelling. We even work on storytelling together quite often, and it's no surprise that as soon as we start chatting, We immediately go off into other directions and get way off topic before we come back and find our groove and ask that big question. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Today, we're here with my friend Zena, uh, both drinking tea and talking about stories. Hi, Zena. How are you doing? Hi, Connor. I'm doing good and feeling a little nervous about being recorded. I'm very nervous. (laughs) First show in a while. Um, always, always good to get the kinks out with a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you, I know you fairly well. Uh, we met a little under a year ago now, I think, uh, at, uh, online and then in person at your big show and in person and online many times since. Um, but I don't met think I'm at the, the beach storytelling. I think so. Yeah. Um, but I don't think the rest of the world knows you. Uh, so I was wondering if you could introduce yourself to the rest of the world, or as oh, many wow. of them who are going to listen. Hello, rest of the world. I'm uh, Zena Merkin. Um, I'm a storyteller, a theater maker based in Amsterdam and the city of Groningen in the north of the Netherlands. Um, what else to say? <laughs> what else to say, indeed. I think it's uh, people have the expectation that storytellers always have a story in their pocket, right? I've had this uh, several times where I tell people I'm a storyteller and say, oh, tell me a story. <laughs> like, okay, what do you do? You're an illustrator? Draw me a picture, please. <laughs> You're a baker. Bake me some bread. Yes, now, here. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, yeah, so how have things been going? Sorry, you just had a glitch. Oh, we just glitched out of it. How are, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I just started touring um, the show Gerhardt um, along nursing homes, old people's homes. So yesterday was the first time. And that was interesting. That was taking a theater, pay, pay, bleh, a theater piece of storytelling into a different environment. And the first group was not completely capable of fully understanding the full story. And that made it slightly difficult. They had dementia, different stages. 
And that made the telling uncomfortable as well, because I realized that certain parts of the story can sound very harsh if you don't follow the full story and see how the prejudice in the beginning of the story becomes a close friendship. Um, and there was also some response from the staff who were shocked by the explicitness of talking about death, which they felt very uncomfortable with. Um, and I'm not completely sure if this is them not fully respecting old people and their abilities or whether it's true. And um, I listened to their issues and for the second telling, I adjusted the telling. Um, they had also told the people about it beforehand, more of what the subject was, that it was a serious subject and not the, hey, we're gonna have some fun with you today. Um, and uh, so I left out the explicitness of standing next to a corpse for the first time in my life and just talked about uh, what a beautiful ritual it was to say goodbye to someone in that way. And I didn't have my friend die so quickly. It was much more of a, oh, it's bad news, uh, slowly bring them into that. And we also had a conversation afterwards. So the second telling was much better and the people that came were also more present, let's put it that way. So it's, uh, it's nerve wracking and exciting to see what's gonna happen the next 13 performances. Yeah, well, you have then 12 to get it perfect. Um, yeah, exactly. And then we're going to go bring it to teenagers and have to adjust all over again. You mean the teenagers won't like the same thing that the people in the old folks home do? I think that, I think, for instance, the teenagers would enjoy a much more graphic description of standing next to a corpse, for example. Like that bit I wouldn't want to leave out for the teenagers. Um, and it's also partly finding out which groups within like yeah i think with storytelling it's always adjusting your story to the different target groups always um and i imagine people who are 85 years old and in a nursing home uh are much closer to death so for them it would be different than say a 65 year old person in a theater um and also um they were very worried because one volunteer at one point had walked out she was obviously upset she had recently lost a husband so they were very worried, but then that volunteer came to me afterwards and specifically thanked us for the story and said it was very meaningful for her. So I think there's also this fear of invoking emotions without understanding that that's the whole point of storytelling and that these allowing these emotions is actually a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think you really hit it, hit it on the head there that just because a story is sad or makes you cry doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. Um, you know, these are natural parts of the human response system and it's it's natural to cry after a severe shock um, or to be reminded of that. Even, you know, if it's a short time ago or a long time ago, I think it's okay. Uh, it's normal part of being human. I think it's one of the reasons people are attracted to storytelling. It's an, it's an environment where you, unlike a theater, you're not sitting in the dark. You can see each other. Often it's in a semicircle setup. So you have this chance to experience emotions that you normally feel alone with other people. You can you can see them laugh, you can see them cry, you can see them look angry, and you're sharing this emotion. I think it's the same reason a lot of people love football. You can be happy together and angry together, and you can this communal sharing of an emotion is, I think, a very healing thing, a very necessary thing, and storytelling can bring that. Yeah, and often also 
what is it that's touching someone? They're part of a, the story. I have this prejudice against this old man who slowly becomes my friend. And I start to admire him for the positivity in which he approaches his, his physical decline and how he's always being able to look at things positively, to talk, not able to read the newspaper, but be so happy that BBC News Radio is so good. Or um, he can't walk to the shops anymore, but he can still get to the third lamppost. And every day he walks to the third lamppost. And in my story, I talk about how this decrepit old body actually turns out to be the strongest person I know. And that is a part where a lot of old people start to cry. And I imagine the crying is also a feeling of validation for their life struggles and how they're going through things. Um, and I don't judge that to be a bad thing for that, for there to be tears there. And yeah. it took me a while to learn. I used to freak out when people cried. I wanted to like rush in and apologize. Well, I, <clears throat> yeah, I think I had a bit different perspective when I was more in a starting, starting out as a storyteller that I often kind of took the angle that, okay, I want to make everybody cry with my stories. Mm -hmm. um, and then I go back and read them now and I'm like, oh, this was way too far. I was totally overboard with the, you know, I was reading a lot of Russian Soviet literature at the time. And I think it really shows in the stories that I was choosing to tell and how I was choosing to tell them, you know, it's full throttle all the time and everything is awful. <laughs> um, but I wanted to have that emotional landing uh, because I think that that's, Anytime that we get a visceral emotional response from an audience, also in football, um, if they're cheering loudly or, or angrily or crying um, or somehow otherwise engaged in a story and expressing emotion outside of that normal kind of standard box of like, how are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay too. Um, your story is making an impact. It's landing. Uh, it's doing what it's supposed to if that's make us cry or make us laugh or make us do both at the same time. Um, but I think the purpose of that for me. Is um, that what the story is supposed to do according to you? Well, I think my, I always come back to my standard definition. A story is a shared emotional experience. Um, so I, I think you are told, I totally agree with what you said about when you're in theater, we can see those people draw in that energy. Um, And yeah, like you said also about the room and the context. Um, some people will laugh at, one room will laugh at a story that I tell. Another room will cry at the exact same moment. We are both sharing an emotional experience at that time. Is it the same story? I'm not sure because we have a different audience, right? And so just like any storyteller, we're adjusting our story to fit into the audience and to feed off their reactions and build up to that moment that we know is there and they anticipate is coming. Um, and so that emotional roller coaster, for lack of a better metaphor, is for me the function of a story um, to take us into that shared world uh, and kind of see the world through someone else's perspective or through the perspective they're choosing to present. Right. So you talk about your story, Gerhard. Um, a lot of it is told from the perspective of your friend who is much older than you. Um, is that your perspective? No. But you, as a storyteller, are sharing it with us. And so together, we all are kind of bringing our own components of like, oh, that reminds me of my grandmother, or that reminds me of myself, right? And talk about these people who are feeling recognized. One um, woman yesterday said that, she said, oh, it was like you told my story. Yeah. And then she named all the similarities in the story. And it's, I think with Garrett as well, there's not just his perspective. There's the perspective of the 15-year-old teenager There's the perspective of the 20-year-old 
and there's perspective of me now looking back at the story like all these perspectives are in it yeah and i think that kind of shifting dynamic of the story is also makes it really powerful right so you have these um and i don't want to make out gerhardt to be a static character but he's definitely an established person with the persona and and beliefs and kind of ideas and I mean, he's an old man. Old men don't change that quickly. The other character is a young woman who's just starting her own life journey. And so every time we check in, we're like, oh, Gerhard is still Gerhard. But this other character is different every time. And it, it this tension of the story and these two speeds of the characters developing um, really adds to me that that effect. And I think it really draws in the beauty of kind of how, how to use characters in storytelling. But and it went to here because I had not thought of that. That one character is actually more static, and the other is continuously evolving and changing throughout the story. That's a really interesting perspective that I hadn't had on my own story. Yeah, and I think also that we see, and I'm—I mean, it was a long time since I saw the show, but I think also we see Gerhard changing in his own ways. Um, like you said, uh, that okay, he can't walk to the store anymore, but he'll walk to the lamppost. Uh, and so his, whereas one change is, they're both accept stories of acceptance in a way. One is about accepting that I'm not able to do all the things I used to be able to do in the world. Um, and my time is passing. The other is accepting that, oh, I'm growing up. And like certain things that used to be taboo are just normal now. And certain things that used to be normal are taboo now. And how do I be like, an adult? And how do I continue this friendship? when I'm being pulled in all of these other directions and what should I do about that? Um, so I think that, yeah, this juxtaposition always works so well in stories and this kind of, um, you know, this almost butterfly effect friendship of just, oh, well, we had this random meeting uh, and now because of that, this whole story is going to play out mm. to the obvious ending i think anybody who walks into the show and kind of knows the premise is like okay well there's kind of one way that we know this is going to end but we don't care because we're here along for that ride right we're here for that shared emotional experience you know stories are not plots and i think that the ending isn't completely obvious because there is that part of how this friendship continues 25 years after death I think that's the less obvious part of the story. Um, yeah. Talking about perspectives yesterday, um, as I was telling it, I talk about the things we had in common. And one of the things was that we agreed that the generations that were between us in the 70 years between us, that they were fucking things up big time. And as soon as I said that, one of the old people in the audience went, excuse me? And I was like, yes, Garrett would also not approve of the use of that word. But the sentiment was there. And it was this beautiful moment of, yeah, exactly. Here's the, here's the generational conflict. Um, yeah, it was a beautiful moment of having him in the space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, um, Glenda, someone that I hope to interview for the, for the show in an upcoming episode, um, she talks about people being patterns. And that like the person may be gone, but the pattern still exists. And as long as we keep that pattern alive, then we're keeping also part of that person alive. And so mm -hmm. I think like Gerhard was very much alive in that room for that moment of like, don't be saying that. That's not 
the proper way that we speak. Um, you know, and so I, yeah, I think that's a beautiful kind of, yeah, that slip of a memory. Uh, and just for a moment, you can see them there in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to come back to this, to this idea of memory and storytelling and, um, yeah, transitioning, changing lives, like changing patterns. Um, because I know we talked before about kind of the topic for this show. Uh, and when I had told you the, the big question, uh, what story changes or what story changed your life? Um, you immediately started in on, well, what, what is this question and what's going on? Um, so, so let me, let me ask you the question, what story changed your life? Like I already started telling you earlier, um, I can't name a single story that changed my life. But what did change my life was the understanding that everything is a story. And that they are all based on the perspective of a character. And I think for me, one of the biggest moments that that became aware, like everything's a story, borders are stories, gender is stories, like all these things are stories that we've made up and collectively agreed on uh, or not. Um, For me, I think the moment that I realized how important this was, was when um, my heart was broken, whether it was by me or by the other person, that's still a question to be answered. And I was incredibly unhappy and yeah, a lot of big and strong emotions. And I was sitting in a sauna by myself and suddenly the rain was falling on the glass roof and I was just lying there. And suddenly I thought, huh, how many stories can I tell? And so I made the story that was all his fault. And I made the story that it was all my fault. And I made the story that it was two damaged people with paths who were unable to communicate. And I kept making different versions of the story. And I think that to me has been the biggest life changer for me to realize that none of these stories are true. These are my versions of what I tell. And growing up, I had the story of um, hippie freedom from my parents that I love. This was a great childhood that I had. And then somewhere in my thirties, when I started feeling mothering, mothering feelings towards a child, suddenly that story didn't make sense anymore. Suddenly it was a story of neglect. And that was the first time I actually came eye to eye with my own trauma that I had been denying. Um, And that became my big story. My whole childhood, it was just one big neglect and horrible and suffering and trauma. And that story has also changed again. Like these, they're, it's, it's a mix of both. There was, there were great aspects and there were painful aspects and this life story of mine keeps changing and it develops as I grow older and the way I talk about it. And I'm very active in the radical honesty movement or learning or practicing radical honesty. And a lot of the time they talk about my story, your story. And you see people also sharing life stories. And for me, like the first time I shared my life story, I had 45 minutes. And I think I needed the first 30 minutes to talk about like the first 10 years of 12 years of my life. And most of it was about my mom. And then processing and moving forward and therapy and just dealing with stuff a year and a half later, I had a 20 minute slot to tell my life story. And weirdly, my childhood was hardly part of it anymore. It was a very quick summary of, hey, this was my childhood. And suddenly I found myself talking more about my future life than my past life. So these 
yeah, this understanding and and it became also to me the 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 beauty of storytelling. And I think in that sense, storytelling has become my version of spirituality or religion or not really sure what word to put on it. Um, this concept that as a storyteller, and I definitely did not have this understanding when I started, my aim is to become the narrator. And the narrator knows every single character's perspective equally. So even if I'm telling my own personal story, it's not just about my character. I'm not the same person as the character in my story. I am an older, more evolved person who has deeper understanding. Um, an example I've given before is of a story I once heard, which was one of the first times I realized how strongly this meant to me, was an older man talking about how he was bullied as a child. And he was talking about how the bully was this incredible asshole and the teacher was this incompetent wench. And, and I had this reaction like, wait a minute, you're a 60 year old man telling this story. You should understand now that the bully was a seven year old boy and that the teacher was an early 20s young girl, completely new and in a system that wasn't supporting her and or didn't have the skills or whatever it was. But to as the and he can still tell the story from the perspective of the six year old child who's being bullied by this mean seven year old. But adding as a narrator to have this knowledge of the perspectives of the other, that to me gives the real depth in storytelling. It gives the real understanding that there is no one truth. There is no one experience. And if you become the narrator, then enemies and heroes don't exist anymore because they're only from the perspective of a single character or a group of characters who agree. And to me, if there is a God, God knows all perspectives. And if you know, if you fully know a character, you can't help but love them. Um, even if you don't like what they do, you understand how they came to do what they did and how they were destined to do so and they couldn't do differently with the tools and the knowledge and the support and the development they had. And I think there's no way I can know all perspectives in the world. But in the tiny world of my stories, I can. And that is this continuous discovery that there just aren't any bad guys out there or heroes or they're just human beings doing their darndest. Oh, ain't that the truth? <laughs> yeah. And it was for me also, it's become a very healing way of processing a story because if I haven't, if I'm still telling from an open wound, there's no way I can take on the other person's perspective. I'm still mad at them. They're still wrong. And I notice it even now in arguments, if I'm going around like, oh, I had a fight with my housemate and she's wrong and she did this and she did that. I'm so aware of the fact that I am now projecting on her and that I don't know the full story because I've just made her the villain. Um, and this has changed my life, this understanding of stories and that yeah, to really deeply to the core understand this old Jewish saying that an enemy is just someone whose story we haven't heard. I think yeah. it's a Jewish saying. Yeah. Um, to really understand that in my core, that changed everything for me. Yeah, I think that's something that I ran across when I was when I was doing my thesis. So I I dove deep into into the world of heroes and, and villains and enemies. And we'll leave the discussion about hero for another time. That's a, that's a word that deserves an entire series to itself. But one tidbit, and I'm, you know, amateur speaking as an amateur here, but one tidbit that I found a, 
a way to translate the, the root word of enemy um, from its yeah really old form uh, into modern language would be not friend. And I okay. found the implication of that to be very deep and wise. Um, that the kind of standard definition for enemy was that, well, they are not my friend yet, or they could be my friend. Um, and so I think that you've nailed it with this, this story that you've shared, um, the story of stories. And I just want to comment that, you know, it begins in, I think, the perfect way for a storyteller. You've, you've gone through some horrible, difficult experience. You've walked literally into a cave full of steam. Um, <laughs> and, and while you're there looking up at like nature coming down at you alone, um, with your thoughts, you have, you have had this revelation, um, and so some would say that, you know, okay, well, this must have happened to you also in a past life. Uh, you know, uh, it feels very uh, shamanesque, um, you know, almost almost like from a movie or from the storytelling books themselves, right? The, the hero, to use that wonderful word, has entered the cave um, with some weight and has left it um, feeling lighter and, and better. So I was wondering if you could take us back to that place. You know, do you remember what it was like to walk out of the sauna um was it a was it a shock like did it did it really snap in your head of like oh i have unlocked the secret or did it take time to sink in i remember walking out with a question and the question was i wonder which story i'm going to tell it was really that it was this realization there are so many different stories i could tell and I don't know which one it is that I am going to tell. And it has also changed considerably in the last few years. So the story I tell now of that man in my life is a completely different story than I told when I left the sauna. There was still a lot of hurt. There was still a lot of anger. Um, and so the version of the story I told then was still one that was tainted by my hurt and anger. Um, and very little not very little, there was some, but limited understanding of how I created the situation myself. And at the time, I think my story still was, okay, we were two hurt people and he broke my heart. And my story now is like, oh, I had expectations of him he could never have lived up to. And I absolutely broke my own heart. Um, so in that sense, my story has definitely changed. And I think this is to me, almost what stories, what the purpose of a storyteller is. It's not to give anyone an answer or even to pass on a message. It is to give the listener questions that this is, I think, very much the core of what my storytelling has become, not how it started, but very much how it has become that I'm not here to answer your questions. I'm here to share something which will give you questions to ask yourself, which will help you move forward. And I've also come to believe, and that was the last, the online performance you saw, the versions we tell, that sometimes it's also important to make the listener so uncomfortable that they have no choice but to ask the question. Because if you're comfortable, then you can just push these questions away and ignore them. If it becomes too uncomfortable, you're forced to face a question. Um, and that's new to me, to, to allow for a certain level of discomfort. And at the same time, I've also had a lot of people say to me that what they love about my stories is that 
I have a very safe way of introducing questions that are uncomfortable. So, so I like that leaving the cave as you, I really like this description. I had not even seen it as this allegory. Uh, I just was like, oh, I was in a sauna and this thing happened. Um, but I like the fact that I, that I actually walked out with questions and not with an answer. Yeah, I think that's that's a great way to look at. I mean, I want to say life because like storytelling is life, mm. <laughs> you know, um, like you said, everything is a story. Um, so I would ask you then, you know, we've heard your story. Um, you've shared it with us and, and thank you for sharing such a beautiful and inspiring story. Uh, but what question would you then like to leave for for the audience? Um, you know, you've you've primed us, and you've entered. Mm. You know, safely drug us into the space where we're thinking about what stories we're telling ourselves and other people. Um, I think the question that leads me as a storyteller and has been leading me for about a year and a half now has been this stepping away from the um, what I call the industrialized way of making stories of of setting out like I have this thing I need to say. Um, or I, yeah, I want to make a story about this or this very structured approach to making a story. Um, and more the, I'm going to allow stories to grow naturally. And this has been very intriguing for me. Like, what are the stories that happen if I don't actually set out to make a story and I just allow them to grow in continuous interaction with other human beings where I share experiences and see what grows and yeah, I think the story that's grown out of that is the story I appreciate most of my whole collection of stories right now. And it's it's a story that to me even feels bigger than me. And it's a message, the message of the story that I see at the moment, because these can also change, is a message that's hugely important to me, myself, which I find very interesting that I make a story and I'm like, ooh, I needed to hear this message. Um, and I imagined before when I construct a story, I already have my message ready. So I'm taking an already learned lesson um, to pass on to people. When I grow a story, this is what I'm finding, is that the story ha also has messages for me. Um, and that that's happening more and more, that the stories that I've, I've allowed to naturally grow and develop. Um, so for instance, like the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, started as a feminist, I'm going to have a feminist approach to this story and give Eurydice uh, agency, um, morphed into an understanding that it, that the not looking back stands for how you can be present with someone with dementia without feeling having lost them. So it became a story about my mother and I and dementia. Um, and this naturally growing of a story, that question, like what happens if we stop trying to make a story and we just allow them to grow? naturally what kind of stories come out then i think for me that i ask myself a lot yeah yeah that really resonates especially when you talk about relationships um you know and i think we all have some experience um with trying to make a relationship work or or just hanging on um to to a story that we used to tell about the relationship instead of just letting the relationship grow the direction it wants to. And if that's a part or a way, uh, then that's where the growth is. And we shouldn't be afraid of that growth. Um, 
I think, of course, there seems to be a bit of trade-off um, because also I notice when you tell your story or the different versions of the story that you could tell um, looking back at your relationship, that there are different levels of ownership and control in different types of stories. And so mm -hmm. I think we also when I look at my own life story and how I've narrated it, at sometimes I want to be really autonomous and have that control and tell a story that makes me look like I'm in control. And other times I want to tell the story of the system and the random chance in life that's been pushing me in a certain direction. And I wonder if the challenge then is to not use that to our own advantage, right? We talked about like challenging spaces versus safe spaces and how do we as individuals bring ourselves into that challenging space that stories do for us. Um, but how do we not manipulate this understanding that everything is a story to make our world totally safe and insular? I'm not 100% sure I understand your question. Um, we as storytellers have an incredible power to manipulate a story, um, to spin a story in whichever direction we want, I imagine. Um, and for me, part of the interest is to always strip down and find out what is not story. What is the actual fact? Um, the fact is there was 50 euros and somebody took it. The story is it was stolen from me. Or the story was, hey, they have used me so often, I deserve to have some money compensation for all the work I've done for them as a friend. They like there's um and it's actually something I would love to play with. I would love to collect get a collection of storytellers and lay down a few facts and let each person make a story from the character's point of view. And then have the audience at the end figure out what were the actual facts, what is the things that nobody can deny happened and for me that's the only reality that is really there so um anything to the level of you're ignoring me is a story you are looking you're not looking at me that's a fact um you're distracted again is a story so there's this something about the safety is also being very aware of when you are making how often you're making a story and owning the fact that this is a story. And to me, like one of the things I found very interesting, because I have this deep felt truth about what storytelling is and what storytelling should be. Um, and that truth is also my truth and my story. And recently I was giving a, like an introductory type of workshop very just happened to be at a retreat and I gave this as a sort of diversion in the evening. And I talked about what storytelling was to me and the importance of the narrator and the character and personal stories, personal experience stories to be separated. And I was also inviting other people to share stories. And one person said like, oh yeah, I want to share a story, but it's wrong because it's not right because the narrator and the character are exactly the same person. And I was like, no, that's just my wrong. That's not the wrong. There's no rules about what storytelling is. This is the, I just shared you with you my truth. That's my story about storytelling. You do your thing and discover your own story. Um, and what I found really interesting was the response of one of the other people who was there who was really quite overwhelmed emotionally because um, she said that she never hears teachers say that to own the fact that, hey, this is my truth and I'm going to tell you my truth as if it were a truth and still own it as it's just my story. And I think as a storyteller, that's an important 
Um, yeah, I like playing with it as well. I like telling a story and then switching perspective just for a moment to just give the audience a reminder, like, oh, wait, this is just one perspective that we're seeing. Yeah, and I know from personal experience that you also like to play with the role of the narrator and the character. Um, I have a high susceptibility to transportation, if we want to use the kind of technical storytelling language. Uh, in layman speak, I get swept up in a story and I will believe anything. Uh, so I've definitely heard Zena tell a few stories where I, I was certain that it really happened and it must be the truth. Um, only to find out later, oh no, I made that whole thing up. You tricked me again. <laughs> I'm so gullible. It was such a great story. And I think that's that's kind of the the point I was getting at. And I think you you really nailed it with the understanding the difference and, and like making that deal, deal uh, making that separation between what is really something that happened and an incident, an object, a fact. What is my story? That's what I'm presenting out to the audience. That's what I'm telling. And what is my truth? And that's really what I'm believing and what I'm kind of using to build my frame of reality and understanding that all three of these things are, are different things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I wonder where to go once you have this understanding. Just, you can make more stories. That's the great thing. You can make so many more stories. You can tell the story from so many different perspectives. Um, I think this is also where my intrigue at the moment lies. The last uh, performance I made uh, with Oguta Maraya and Abhishek Tapar, the versions we tell, was very much that. Let's see how many perspectives we can eke out in this hour that we have for a performance of one story. Um, I find it very interesting. I find even the little play in taking a story and just looking at it from an outsider's point of view, from the other character's point of view of when I'm angry at someone trying to tell my my story of the conflict from their point from the point of view of the person I'm angry at. Something like that and how hard that is when you're still like believing your version of the story and feeling righteousness. Um and at the same time there's an incredible liberation that like oh wait I'm telling this version of a story and I'm actually making myself angry by telling that version or I'm telling this version of the story and I'm making myself sad. Um, there's an incredible freedom in realizing like, oh, the type of story I choose to tell. Um, and it can be in little things. I just had a guest stay over, some guest stay over, and I went into the laundry room to hang up laundry. And one of the guests followed me to ask a question and we just were talking while I hung up the laundry. And the one who was left in the kitchen made up a story. Oh, they don't want to talk to me. That's why they went in the other room. And so she came to be upset with us and then realized like, oh, they're just hanging up laundry. Um, so even in this, like we upset ourselves, we make ourselves angry, we make ourselves sad with all these stories that we make up in our head continuously. We stress ourselves out with stories about what we think other people's expectations are or with my guests as well, like what they think they should be as a good guest. Uh, how they should behave. And one of them had made up a rule that I wanted the dishes done immediately because that's what I did. And I was like, I don't care when other people do the dishes, but if it's my turn, I want them out of the way. So there's, yeah. And there's an incredible freedom in discovering that these are all stories and it gives you the opportunity to check in with other people. 
like, hey, I'm making up a story right now that you're angry with me based on the look on your face and the way you're walking through the room. Is this true? Do you buy my story? Um, it's, a, it's a question often asked within radical honesty, like, do you buy my story? Yeah, I think it's a great question because it highlights a bit the commodification of stories and how they are transactionable objects that we can trade them back and forth and we can choose to use this as a conduit for discussion or we can throw it away and get a new one. Um, I wanted to come back. There was two, there were two things. One, I think something that I struggle with personally as a storyteller, like both as like a personal storyteller, but also as like a public storyteller is this word righteousness. Um, mm -hmm. Because man, it's righteous. When that story that you've been telling yourself for months and months and months internally, that comes out to become the truth. Um, it's like, oh, I knew it. I knew this government was blank or I knew this person was whatever. Um, and that pride, that ego, this is like the bane of every storyteller, um, individually and professionally, uh, because it just blinds you to the multitude of stories that you can tell. And you had mentioned earlier that, and we're going to go off the deep end here for a few seconds. You mentioned earlier, God knows all perspectives. I would edit that slightly. I would say God is all of the perspectives. And that righteousness, that ego, like when we, that blinds us to the existence of all of these other stories. And in a way, if we want to play the word switch out, that blinds us to God, whatever you want to say that is. Um, and so I think you have like this polycentricity, this polyvocality, this like multiple locations and multiple perspectives on stories, on like any story is fundamental to understanding the human experience. You know, there's a very famous uh, storytelling guy who wrote that, you know, there's only one story and we're all just repeating the same steps that that original hero went through. Um, every time that we go out and tell a story that's very structuralist and i think you know a bit constrained but i think the kind I of don't buy that story. <laughs> I don't buy that story i, I did i have it i have it sitting on the shelf <laughs> i found it very useful um but indeed it's not one that i carry in my pocket um as kind of story currency you know so so I think this is an interesting metaphor that I maybe have stumbled upon. So you have this, this story currency in your pocket that you're carrying around, you know, your, your change of stories. And you've, you've kind of nailed this one um, with your big story about, you know, everything is a story. And so... What you were you, saying, I want to add to this about righteousness and ego... I like this saying that if God is all perspectives, ego is that which disconnects us from others. It is that which makes us aware of ourself. And uh, without ego, we are one of in we are part of the whole. Um, and righteousness is indeed, I judge, incredibly strong. Uh, what is it? A power of of the ego or a tool of the ego. And for me when I notice feelings of righteousness are moments I realize I am nowhere ready to tell this story because I have, and it has become for me even a tool of understanding when I'm telling a story from a wound or a scar, because it can be very difficult to know, like, have I actually processed this experience enough? And as long as I cannot tell the story from other perspectives, as long as I feel righteous about one of the perspectives being the truth or reality or right 
um, or obvious, then I'm not ready to actually share the story widely. Um, and I, I actually, yeah, for me, righteousness has become a tool of understanding where I am in the development and creation of a story as a storyteller. Or even as a person, like if I'm still convinced someone's wrong, I'm very aware that I'm projecting and somewhere I'm wrong myself. Yeah. Are there any stories that you personally wouldn't separate into those buckets where you're like, okay, this story, I believe in this so strongly um, that I would never be able to tell it from another point, from the other point of view, because it's part of my fundamental identity, part of my belief. I think this story the story of there being several stories. I think this is the one that if someone's going to convince me like, no, no, there is a right and there is a wrong and there is just one right story. And there are such things as enemies and heroes um, objectively from all perspectives. That would be one that I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'm not willing to let that one go. Well, I mean, I know it's just my opinion, but I think you've chosen the right story to hang on to. And I hope <laughs> I hope that someone in our audience is is sparked by it and that it can become one of the stories that they tell when someone asks them what story changed their life. Mm -hmm. And for me, like if I ask myself, it is a story that serves me incredibly well. It serves me well in mental health. It serves me well in my interpersonal relationships. It serves me well in crisis management, realizing that this is just one version of a story. So I imagine that's also a reason why it's important for me to hold on. And I judge it actually serves society well, the awareness that there are more stories. So even though it might not be a true story, it's definitely one I judge serves us very well. Well, we're still, the hunt for the true story is still on. So I want to thank you again, Zina, so much for taking the time um, and energy to to go on this adventure and share your story with us. And I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your next show. Um, whenever I get a chance to see what you have online next, and of course, to, to seeing yourself soon. Thank you. From the Dutch International Storytelling Center, this has been Disc Radio. This episode was edited and produced by Connor McMullen, with outro music by Boomy Goldson. Please tune in next time for more stories. Yeah, that's, a, that's another way that our memories change is that we see something again from as an adult and we realize the size is different or these like, it's less magical or 